You know, working at a church, it can be easy to be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word because you're around it all the time. And you can touch it, you can see it, you see it happening. But to choose to, to put yourself on the cross rather than just hang around the cross, to say, God, I'm willing to die to these things that I may have more of you, that is the heart call of God. And so it's a, it's a wonderful thing to work at a church like this. It's a dangerous thing to work at a church like this, I found, for my own heart. Anyway, let me begin um, by just saying it's, it's just an honor to be here. It's an honor to, uh, to be here actually with Nate speaking. It's fun because we were both disciples of Tom Alexander in college and career here um, when Tom came back from Argentina, and he poured a lot into us. And there's many of us around here who still live from the strength of discipleship that he gave us. And I know Nate and I talk about that, and Tom, we're just grateful for what you've done for us, so thanks. Thanks. So kind of a product of it. If you don't like my message, talk to Tom. It's Tom's <laughs> fault. That's what disciples do. <laughs> so this morning, um, after having prepared and wrestled through this word, which is not the word I actually wanted to give, I had a message about the delight of God. And about a month ago, God began to say, that's not my heart for this conference. And, uh, and as I was wrestling with him, okay, so one thing about me is I get choked up with the things of God. Let me tell you this. The first pastor I was saved under, he get choked up with the things of God, and I remember praying for his anointing. I think you said it last night, be careful what you pray for, right? So now I get choked up with the things of God I have ever since. So anyway, wrestling through this message, the thing that struck me is here's what the Lord said when I was wrestling with, do I, I don't really want to talk about the subject I'm talking about. It's barriers to intimacy with God is the subject I'm talking about. I want to talk about delight of the Lord. That was my subject. That was the thing that I thought, God, you know, hey, let's do this. That's fun. That's enjoyable. And the Lord said to me, do you want to please me or do you want to please man? Do you want to please me or do you want to please yourself? And it was this moment with God that I had to say, I need to lay down my desires, my, these things. It was a moment of the fear of the Lord where I had to say, okay, God, Let's do your thing. He said, why do you care what people think? It revealed all sorts of things in my heart that were a lack of fear of the Lord, but a fear of man. And I began a month ago to kind of wrestle through this and start working through this. Well, this morning about 5 a.m., here's what the Lord woke me up. Or the Lord woke me up, I prayed. You know, when I get woken up at night, I'm either just thirsty or something, or maybe I didn't, you know, my stomach's bothering me, whatever. Or it's the Lord, and I didn't know which it was this morning, because I'm like, Lord, I need sleep. I got this message, you know, I'm, this is not the time. If this is you, this is not the time. <laughs> Here's what he said. He said, Chris, before you give your message, tell these beloved people, my people, that this comes from the heart of a loving father who is jealous for them, for greater intimacy and nearness with them. So I want you to take that as the context of this message. This is going to be a little bit more in your face. It's going to be a little bit like Nate's. No boogers, but a little bit like Nate's. We're going to talk about barriers to intimacy. When I was doing Bible school with YWAM, and we were doing a chronological study of the, the Bible itself, we got to the book of Kings and Chronicles and the Old Testament stuff, which I, before that, I just didn't, eh, all this stuff, people killing people and all this and all these kings. But there was something they pointed out, which is 
this little phrase in the beginning of each king. King so-and-so did good in the eyes of the Lord. Or king so-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if you lay it out, the whole Israel, when the kingdom split, Israel, the northern kingdom, there was not a single king that did good in the eyes of the Lord. And in the southern kingdom, Judah, this was the, the kingdom of David and Solomon. Do I need to adjust this, Tom? Is it, no, is it okay? Okay, I don't want to feedback. Um, the kingdom of the southern kingdom, what was going on is that it was about 50-50. Did good in the eyes of the Lord, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and it was back and forth. And then the next thing that it says in almost every case is this. They walked in the ways of the Lord or did not walk in the ways of the Lord? They tore down the high places or they did not tear down the high places. They tore down the Asherah poles, they did not tear down the Asherah poles. This is a big deal to God. This is the idols, right? He's not saying about all their behavior. and That comes later sometimes, you know, what they did. But it seems that what is very important to God is that this place of idols in our life is torn down. You know, we don't have Asherah poles maybe today. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I don't... I didn't go and build one myself. Um, I, I don't know if anyone is sacrificing their kids to Baal. Uh, you know, that was part of the offering. We would think that that is crazy today. We get thrown in jail, right? You get tried for manslaughter today. But are there things that are in our heart that come before God in the way that these kings were setting things up or let things be set up? See, it wasn't just that they did that. It's that they didn't tear them down. They didn't tear down the idols. And so I want to challenge you in this as what might be encumbering you from running the race to God? What might be getting in the way of your intimacy with God? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. We're called to run an unencumbered race. This is Hebrews 12, 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now there's two things in there I want to just touch on. There is sin. When I used to read this, I just always saw the sin. Encumbrance is just another sin. No? An encumbrance can be something that's not sin, but it weighs me down. I'm trying to run a race. I got this big backpack on. I can still run the race. I got the backpack on. Run the race, run the race, run the race. It's not that the backpack is evil, but it's keeping me from running faster. It's keeping me from actually getting to the goal that God desires me to get to in the spiritual race that we're running. So, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You have, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as sons and daughters. I'm just going to pray for a moment here. Lord, thank you that you call us to throw off the encumbrances. 
God, thank you that you are a God who disciplines those you love. Lord, this morning, as you might confront us with areas that are barriers in our heart, Lord, would you strengthen us and tenderize us, Lord. Strengthen us to say yes to you and tenderize us to choose to soften our hearts as we hear your voice. It says in the word, today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Lord, let us not be hardened, but let us be softened to you and to what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about three barriers to intimacy. The list of barriers to intimacy could go on and on and on. There are all sorts of things that keep us away from God. But I want to talk about three things this morning. One is distraction from drawing near. Secondly, the fear of drawing near. And thirdly, the pain that can happen when we draw near to God. Let me say this. When I'm talking about distractions, what I'm going to talk about next, these things are not necessarily evil. As a matter of fact, you're going to see some of them are very good. But when out of God's bounds, they can become that barrier to intimacy that keeps us from running the race, keeps us from drawing close, and keeps us from the heart of what God has for us. So please keep that in mind. The first barrier I want to talk about are social lives and relationships. Family and friends, these are a blessing from God. Exodus 20.12 talks about parents, honor your mother, your father, and your mother. Give weight to them. That honor, that word honor is giving weight to. Then you will live a long life, full of the land, full life in the land of the Lord that God is giving you. That was Exodus 20, 12, one of the Ten Commandments. Psalm 127, 3, children are inherited from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Proverbs 18, 24, about friendship. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. God's heart is in relationship. However, relationship can become a barrier to God, and here's how. When we begin, take, when we begin to take out of bounds what God has asked us to do in relationship and begin to put him behind the relationships or the relationship with him. So when we let our life be crowded out. Crowded out by relationship. You know what? Who here is busy? Who here is not busy? Maybe that's a better question. Who's not busy? Go ahead, raise your hand. I want to meet you. Our culture says we're busy, we're busy, we're busy. Hey, I'm, what are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. And what I hear people say is, Chris, you're really busy. I mean, I'm busy, but you're really busy. I had someone come up to me the other day. Can we meet for lunch sometime? I'm busy, but you're really busy. So why don't you tell me when you're not really as busy, so our busyness meets, you know, and we can, we can make it happen. Um, it was great. <laughs> but what we can do is we can relet, re, let these types of running after relationship crowd out our intimacy with God. And I want to challenge you to consider these places. Now, Luke 14, 26, and 27 says this. Jesus was kind of stern on this. It's a tough verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own lives, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, is this saying that we need to hate all those we're around? No. But it's talking about a comparison. It's talking about in relationship to God, We need to put him as a higher priority insofar as it almost seems like we would hate others in comparison with God. 
that our love for God needs to be that strong, and our choice for intimacy needs to be that important. Now, sometimes that's a literal thing. When God's calling conflicts with family's desires, sometimes that happens. Now, Jesus confronts the Pharisees about tithing mint and not taking care of the weightier things. So we're not talking about that. But I will tell you this. My mother does not want me to be a pastor. Her heart is not that I'm a pastor. She has an issue with the fact that I'm a Christian, actually. She's Jewish. My mother's Jewish. She was uh, a professor at Brandeis, recently retired. She actually said to me at one point, I don't tell anyone you're a Christian because it's too much explanation and the Jewish world hates people converting. And I'm on the board of these high, important committees. And I said to her, Mom, are you ashamed of me? Well, no, I'm not ashamed. That's not what I meant. I didn't. I said, well, that's what I'm hearing. And if you're ashamed of me, okay. But I had to say, what's most important? Do I walk in the shame of family for the joy of the Lord? Do I exchange one for the other? Am I willing to say yes to God and no to my mother, who I dearly love? She's a wonderful woman. This isn't my issue. It's actually her issue. It's her problem. It's her internal struggle because she was forced to go to a Catholic school as a Jew, and that is still her heart's cry of, why did they send me to a Catholic school? Dear God. That's a barrier to God today. That's her barrier, but I can't let it become my barrier. I can't let my family become my barrier to intimacy with God. The second thing I want to talk to you about intimacy with God is our work as far as distractions. God created work, you know that? Work is not evil. Our culture sometimes thinks work is evil. Oh, I don't want to work. That's a tough job. I might, you know, if I work at a grocery store, I might have to move groceries. I heard one of our teens saying that. And I was like, yeah, that's why you're getting paid. That's why you get to make money. You don't get to just play on your phone and make money. It doesn't work that way. Well, maybe in some cases, but mostly not. <laughs> so God created work. In Exodus 28 9, he says to remember the Sabbath. But then he says, in six days you're going to work, one day rest. Six days cut out for work. God loves work. He delights in it. Ephesians 2.10 says this, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He prepares things for us to do. God is not void of work. But when does our work get out of bounds? Often, we put more effort into our work than into our relationship with the Lord. We try to find our sense of self and accomplishment in work rather than our sense of accomplishment in self um, in God. What God's calling us to is balance. Uh, Back in the college and career days, I was unemployed for a time. And I had fasted and prayed. I was going to leave the company uh, God laid me off. It was, it was a perfect God thing because it was literally the next day I was going to tell them I was done and they laid me off, which was perfect. It ended up getting me a whole grad school free ride and everything. Great story some, for some other time. But about three weeks, I am, I'm loving this. I get vacation. I'm on vacation. Yeah! And I had a little money saved up and everything and I'm good to go. And about three weeks into this, I wake up one morning and I'm like, how dare they? How dare they lay me off? How dare they? 
Now, I, I was running a division. I was 29 years old when I got laid off. I was running a division of a corporation, $32 million operation globally, 16 markets around the world. I was flying everywhere to manage this thing, and the company was having problems, but our area was super profitable. And we were, they described my area as the tugboat that kept pulling the ship along. Just keep it from sinking, keep it from sinking. And so I was mad. How dare they lay me off? And so I began to pray and pray, and then I had peace in my heart. And I know, no, this was God. I know that three weeks ago I knew this was God. Silly me. The next morning I wake up. I say, you know, I probably wasn't all that great anyway. Probably wasn't the right guy for the job. It was the Peter principle. I rose up to too high of a level too quickly, you know, running this segment of a corporation, and, and I was just kind of crappy. And I pray and pray, and the Lord goes, no, no, that's not true. No, this is my hand. This went on for six weeks of up and down, up almost every day. I'm, how dare they? I'm so great. Oh, I can't believe they even hired me ever. I suck. Oh, how dare they? And it was just up and down, up and down. (laughs) Six weeks into this. Tom, you might remember some of this. But six weeks into this, the Lord says something key to me as I'm about to go into one of these, these two polar things. He says, Chris, what changed in your value between the last day of your employment and the first day of your unemployment? And I said, nothing, Lord. He said, that's right. You were neither my incredible gift to them as amazement, nor were you crappy. But your problem is your sense of self is set in what you do rather than who I say you are. And that began a journey which continues in keeping my identity centered in God. But that's how we can get distracted by work because we get these feedback loops, these feedback things. It feels good to accomplish. It feels great to accomplish. God says to do something different. As a matter of fact, Sabbath is exactly to confront that. Sabbath isn't because the work is done. It's because God says it's my world, not your world, and I need you to take a day of rest so you recognize that you're not the one doing it all. That's Sabbath rest. Okay, thirdly, as far as distractions from drawing near, it's going to get a little pokey, our devices. Our devices. God invites us this place of Sabbath rest. American culture, I think we've kind of taken it to an extreme. We want to play all the time, which is great. I mean, we even make work stuff, so it's fun and easy and playful, and I love that, but I don't know that it's the healthiest thing. Phones and computers and tablets. Oh, my. Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and Candy Crush Saga and Netflix and news websites. Do you know what these all have in common? Something I found out. One of my roommates, Curtis White, who's here, um, he had mentioned, we talk about devices and he's doing this V21. How do we, at the school, how do we use devices well and how do we teach teens and young people to actually embrace devices as well? Well, I learned some things from him and I started Googling it a couple weeks ago. There's a science called captology. Captology. Now, I'm going to tell you that I want, this is about raising awareness, this section. So here is the scripture that I want to say, put on the full armor of God. It's Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness 
in heavenly places. In 1998, a person named B.J. Fogg finished his master's thesis titled Charismatic Computers at Stanford. Fogg used methods from experimental psychology to demonstrate that computers can change people's thoughts and behaviors. In 1998, Stanford formed the Persuasive Technology Lab to pursue this study and disseminate and teach this successful methodology. And this field called captology was born. The definition of captology up here. Captology. Computers, by the way, it stands for C-A-P-T, is Computers as Persuasive Technology. Captology refers to computers, using computers to change people's attitudes and behavior. With regard to e-commerce, for instance, customer reviews alongside products encourage people to make purchases, as well as the convenience of one-click ordering, using Amazon as an example. The term was coined by B.J. Fogg in his 2003 book entitled Persuasive Technology, Using Computers to Change What We Think and Do. In his, um, in 2004, they started conferences called Accelerating Change. Next slide, please. Captology, this was his talk. Understanding how computers manipulate people. Here's the psychology behind this. They realized that, and his research said this, to get someone to do something, you need three things. You need them to want to do it. You need them to be motivated to do it. And you need them to be prompted to do it. Does this sound at all like devices you might be using today? This is a place that they said that we're going to use human psychology and actually exploiting human psychology because and the brain. And here's how it works. When you get these notifications... Text, text messages, by the way, they've known for a long time. Psychologists have said this is very addictive. Do you notice that? There's a little, because here's what the message does. That, that ding sound, it's like Pavlovian's dog. You guys ever hear about that? You know, the bell goes and you start salivating. The dog would start salivating as if they're getting food, even if they didn't get food. Same idea in our brains. Ding, notification, flash up on your phone, all that. What that does is that puts a little bit of stress in your system, it gives you a little bit of excitement and anticipation and distributes just a little bit of dopamine from your brain, which is one of the things we find pleasure from. So this is what these devices can do or what persuasive technology, what the strategies are. Now, there have been very successful things in this. The first place of success that they had was helping people to stop smoking by using persuasive technology, computers as persuasive technologies. And one of the reasons that it was so good is because a person... You know, after nagging someone for a while, you get tired of that. Computers do not get tired of nagging people. Computers do not get tired of, of looking at behavior and different things that they have to say, do this, don't do this. Computers are a great tool for this kind of thing. They actually have shown in a study where they used it for medications for elderly. Elderly sometimes, especially people with dementia, don't take their medications, but they need their medications. So they use light-up caps, they use notifications and other things to spur the brain on to say, hey, it's time to take your medicine. And the rate that was without this 50% went up to almost 90% of people taking their medication. Great application of this. However, you can see this is a little bit of a double-edged sword here. Let's look at the next slide. 
This slide talks about the two areas, computers and persuasion coming together. And if you look at this, websites, mobile phones, PDAs, video games, desktop software, chatbots. Do you know you're not always chatting to a person? Smart environments, virtual reality, exercise equipment. Anyone wear, have wearables? Exercise equipment, special kinds, specialized devices, kiosks, all these things, right? This is technology. Now, technology in and of itself is not evil. But they were looking at ways, how do we change behavior, attitude, motivation? This is the one that really shocked me. Worldview. Do you see that that's a goal there? Compliance. Getting you to comply with what someone else wants. These are part of the goals of captology. I would suggest this to you. A lot of technologies, when we talk about technology, it's a double-edged sword, it's neutral. I'm going to suggest to you this is not neutral. In its design, a tablet, a phone, these things are not neutral in their design. The goal is to track your moves and to persuade you to do what the app or website designers desire. When you download one of these, we choose it, right? We say, oh, I want to play Candy Crush Saga. We download it. What are they getting out of it? It's a free app. It's free. Hey, guys, it's free. It's free. What do we know about free? Nothing's ever free. (laughs) What happens? We start playing it. We start playing it. What happens? They say, oh, do this. Sign in your name. Oh, share us on Facebook. Oh, we got a couple ads for you. Oh, by the way, get to the next thing. Hey, here's what you need to do. And it keeps you going and going and going. And the whole goal is to keep you there. Minimally for screen time and advertising. That's, that's probably some of the uh, less damaging stuff that's there. But what else? What are we downloading and putting on our phones for convenience that may actually have a goal of really trying to get us away from what God says? So one is just wasting time. Now, I did something interesting. I went and, uh, if we can go to the next slide here. So I, I just came out of a very busy season uh, at the business office and our whole team. Thank you, team. We made a transition from 20 years of a former accounting software to QuickBooks, and it is not quite like heaven on earth, but it's a lot nicer. We'll just say that. We don't feel captive to our, our software. We feel like the software serves us rather than us serve it. Well, during this time, I knew it was going to be a busy time, and I do like playing games. But I don't always have people to play games with. So I went ahead and downloaded a, um, an app. We're going to move, move completely to the next slide here. Tower of Balloons Defense. Has anyone done this? Has anyone done a, a defense game, a tower defense game? There's a whole slew of them out there. Your goal is you build a, yeah, okay, Hannah's like, yeah, I'm in. Um, your goal is to build a set of defenses, and these, in this case, these little balloons come in. You've got to pop all the balloons before they exit the screen, and you only get like 150 lives or something like that. 150 balloons can exit, and you make these towers, and you, you know, upgrade them and everything. Um, Tom Alexander just scoffed, and he's like, what kind of crap are you looking at, dude? <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. It's entertaining. But you know what I found? They had this thing, if you look in the lower right-hand corner, you see it says daily reward. So if you get on this app, it gives you like some free towers that normally you have to pay for. Just one or two. Each day. Come back tomorrow. And it has a countdown. In so many hours, you can get your next free thing. 
And if you let the reminders go on, it will remind your phone and tell you. I turn off the reminders. So, um, and if you see the thing, see down the lower left-hand corner there, the little thing that says Monkey Lab? That's where when you play like rounds, you get some coins. They give you two or three coins each time or five coins if it's more difficult and longer. And then with that, you can buy an upgrade. So your towers work better. So they're faster. So they destroy more balloons. It's really exciting. <laughs> I need a life, yeah. I, Derek just said, you need a life, Chris. You need a life. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun, right? But what did I find? It hooked me well. It did a great job. You know what I did? I made sure I logged in every day for that reward. And then I wanted to see what happened, you know, like, because it shows you, like, four rewards out there and what you get, and the rewards are just getting better and better little by little. And then it said, you know, you could be on the leaderboard without, the, you know, throughout the world. You could be on the world leaderboard. Right now, you are ranking 1,362,812, but you could do better than that. I found it drew me. It drew me. It was fun. Now, I told Curtis and Brad, I'm like, hey, I'm doing this. Um, I'm kind of doing an experiment here, and I want to see what it does. Well, it works. It really works. It was both fun. It was engaging. I don't know how many videos of advertising that I watch, but a whole lot. All sorts of stuff, right? You play. And then they want you to buy their little coins. Oh, you know what? You don't need to play all that much. For only $5, you can get 500 coins and do your monkey upgrades in your monkey lab. You know, sounds great. This is all part of the technology. This is all part of what trying to captivate us. Now, in true humility and repentance, I burned a lot of hours that I thought were going to help me in Sabbath rest. And you know what the truth was? They weren't restful. Entertaining? Yes. Restful? No. I did not find them to give me life. I found them actually to give me less sleep. That's what I found them to do. And also, what does that do? When I get less sleep, my quiet times sometimes get compromised. My time of intimacy that I set aside for the Lord. I'm running late. I can't. I don't have God. You understand, right? Well, how many days in a row do you have to say to God, you understand, right? And at night, I'm playing my little game. It wasn't okay. God convicted me of that. Actually, I said, Lord, do I need to go on a fast of all technology for a time? I felt like the Lord said, you do not, but you need to stop and cease some of the things you're doing. And I went, okay, yes, Lord. Just to give you an idea of how insidious this is, one of the vi- former vice presidents at Facebook said this about technology and what we're doing. He said, first of all, he does not let his children on social media. He says it is like crack for anybody. And he said this, because your behaviors, you don't realize that your behaviors are being programmed. And he now is working to try to bring information out there to help people not to do this. So, several distractions that we have. By the way, there's a great app I downloaded about a week and a half ago called Stay Free. Here's what it does. It gives you feedback on how much time you're spending on your phone. And I check that once a day and I'm like, I spent an hour and 20 minutes. What was I doing? And it will show you in the app what things were going on. So it's a good feedback mechanism. Now, if you're hooked and addicted, you might need to shut that thing off for a while. You might need to get a dumb phone. Dumb phones are not the end of the world, folks. They really are not. I've gone back a couple times to dumb phones because if, here's the thing, if I can't walk with God purely and wholly before him and I've got something that is holding on to me like this, even if I enjoy it, even if it's something fun, I've got to decide, am I going to be like what Jesus said? He says, if, you're, if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them up. If your hand cause you to sin, cut it off. You know what? This is a lot less painful, a lot less painful than cutting off your hand. 
might not feel like it, but it's a lot less painful if you just choose to do it if you are addicted and it's keeping you from God. Okay, I want to just go through a couple more things. Two other barriers. One is a fear to draw near to God. You know what? When we deal with distraction in our lives, you know what happens? I think, Anthony, you said this. We have this empty space and we have to suddenly start considering our lives. See, the problem with all the busyness is that we fill up the voids that God wants us to be still and know that he's God. He wants us to be self-reflective and examine our hearts. He wants to reveal, like Nathan said, our hearts to us because he already knows them and he wants to bring freedom to us. But when that happens, we get things like, I'm not good enough. I've sinned so God won't hear. I'm too dirty for him from my past. I'm not lovable. God likes other people, but not me. Ever believe that lie? I have. Here's what the truth is, though. It says that none is righteous, so all of us are on equal playing field. That's Romans 3.23. As far as I've sinned, God won't hear me. 1 John 1.9 says he forgives us. As far as my past, he says sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. That's Psalm 103.12. I'm not lovable. God says, oh, yes. You are so dearly beloved. You don't know the height, the depth, the breadth of the love that I have for you in Romans 38, 38 and 39. God doesn't like you. God says he is for you. In Romans 8, 28, he says, if God is for you, who can be against you? That's what Paul says. He challenges us to say this. Am I going to believe God's report or am I going to go on my emotions? See, sometimes, church, we got to throw our emotions in the back seat and we got to start saying, here's what God says. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what feels true to me right now because it's not about my truth and your truth. It's about the truth, the way, the life. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The word made flesh among us. I challenge you, believe the truth. Otherwise, we don't draw near. The last thing I want to talk about is the pain when drawing near. Talk about two areas. Unanswered prayer can be very painful. We talk about this on staff sometimes. When people come up for healing and come up for healing over and over and aren't healed, that's painful for those who aren't healed. When people keep asking God for something that he doesn't seem to answer, here's the thoughts that happen. God doesn't hear me. God doesn't love me. He's not for me. These can be real desires, folks. This is not stuff that's just mundane. I, I want a Cadillac or I want a Mercedes or BMW. I'm not talking those prayers. I'm talking prayers that are need, heartfelt. God, why won't you heal me? How do I deal with that? How do I deal with the, the, the pain of feeling less than when I watch someone else get prayed for? Man, they're healed. How do we deal with that as humans? See, oftentimes what happens is that these create wounds in our heart and we get bitter in our heart and we don't want to draw near because it hurts to draw near. Here's the truth of unanswered prayer. Sometimes the answer is no from God. Sometimes it's simply no and we keep saying, God, I want this, God, I want this, God, I want this. He says no. He's a loving father. He wants to give good gifts to his children. He says that is not a good gift for you. That is not a good gift for you. Or the other thing he says is not now, not yet. Now, I don't think we're going to understand the reasons 
much of the time till the other side of heaven. Sometimes, in hindsight, you look back and you say, oh, thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. That would have been a disaster. But other times, we continue on and we never see in this lifetime why it is God said no. And we have to be okay with the fact that he is God and we are not in that. But it is a place of surrender. How do you heal the wounds of unanswered prayer? I'm going to suggest this. Forgive God. This sounds crazy because he's not guilty, right? But in our hearts, we need to forgive God for not giving you what you thought you deserved and then laying that back on the altar before him, saying, God, your will is greater than my will. Your heart is greater than mine in this. You know all things, God, and you're good. You are good, and I will trust you again in this area. And the second thing is then to ask forgiveness from God for believing wrongly about him and his character. So we forgive him for our, what we misunderstood is what he should do and then ask him to forgive us. Drawing near to God can be fain, painful with the exposure and fear of rejection of historical wounds. God may want to address these wounds in your heart. That may be part of it because a wound buried alive stays alive. It might be 30 years old, but God still needs to deal with the wound And sometimes when it's painful, what do we do? We go to numb ourselves. We go to find things that we can do. This is a great tool for pain because I can escape it. I can find something to put into me. I can find something that will distract me from pain. And God is saying, please don't be distracted. Please come to me. And God calls us to press into the pain. Now, sometimes when we run to sin in the pain of intimacy, I want to just point this out. Sin is a symptom. The question is this, what is the underlying belief in my heart? What are the things that my heart is hurt by enough that I don't believe God in my heart that I know in my head, but I don't believe him here that I run for something less than what is good? Why would I eat out of the garbage dumpster when God has this beautiful buffet for me of himself? But yet we do that, and the question is not the sin. Sin's the behavior. Sin is what has been conceived and plays out. But the question is not, did I sin? Yes, we need to put barriers to sin in our lives. Sin is not okay. It is not at all okay. But we need to also ask the question, God, what drove me to sin, and why do I keep, especially habitual sin, why do I keep going there time after time after time after time? Why do I run to something which is not his goodness? God, reveal in me. Reveal my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me, God. That needs to be the cry of our heart. And I want to encourage you to know you're not alone. No temptation has seized you except what's common to mankind. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Invite others to walk with you in it. I'd like the worship team to come up, and I'm going to close with this. I'm going to close with a tale of two kings. Actually, Beth talked about this a little bit yesterday. King Asa and King Hezekiah. King Asa and King Hezekiah both started out well. They did good in the eyes of the Lord. Both King Asa and King Hezekiah tore down the altars and the things that were keeping them as barriers to God. Both were attacked later in their ministry by another army or in their, in their kingdom. One responded with running to God. The other one responded with running and negotiating for chariots and help. 
Both were struck ill. King Hezekiah responded by saying, God, just a few more years. God, could you give me more life here? Please heal me. And God heard him and healed him. King Asa did not hear the Lord. He never sought him for his healing. He was too bitter, I believe. Hezekiah seemed to have finished well. King Asa did not seem to have finished well. Listen, folks, we can start out the race well, but we can get distracted. We can be afraid to come to God. We can lose the place that we have with the Lord. I want to implore you, let the Lord come into your heart, the fear of the Lord, and these places of intimacy where it might be barriers, please bring them to the Lord. Deal with them today. Thank you much.